In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This is this podcast will be our last one for the next two weeks. We will not offer a Bible study next week because of it, is, of it being Holy Week, and there'll be a lot of other things happening in the midst of it. And so this week we plan on covering all of Holy Week as part of the podcast, kind of talking about the shape and the direction of Holy Week and how uh, you encounter the things that happen within it. And then there will not be a new one released next week. But we will return the week after Easter as we start looking ahead to Easter too. So Lent comes to an end this week, uh, sort of. Uh, Lent still continues through all of Holy Week, but Holy Week takes on its own sort of character, its own sort of shape. And we encounter during Holy Week, sometimes called the Passion Week, all of the different parts of Christ's ministry coming to its fulfillment, its culmination with his death and resurrection. And so next week, uh, all of Holy Week becomes the core of the Christian faith. Without next week, nothing else that Christ did matters. Nothing else that Christ did makes sense. And so Holy Week or Passion Tide or Passion, the week of the Passion, begins on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday itself is an interesting service because it is the one time in the year that the gospel reading is the first thing that happens in the service. So this will be the one reading we hear for today uh, is the gospel reading for Sunday. And so Paul, would you read that for us? John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thank you. Palm Sunday sets the stage for everything that follows in the course of Holy Week. And we see that taking place with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. But we also recognize that the events of Holy Week don't make sense to the people who are there until after Holy Week is concluded. Verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So we have the disciples not understanding what's going on but getting caught up in all of the excitement of what's happening. Then, in verse 17, we find that there's a crowd that had gathered because they were with him when he raised Lazarus from the tomb. 
well, if he can bring somebody back from the dead, this is the greatest of all the miracles he's done so far. What else does he have in store? Then there's a third group, the people who heard about the raising of Lazarus, heard that Jesus is coming in, and so now they are flocking around him, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And then the fourth group we encounter is the Pharisees, and this would be anybody who's working against Jesus, uh, will eventually get lumped into this category of those who are opposed to him. And so as we enter into Palm Sunday, the first part of this Holy Week, we encounter all of these different groups and people trying to wrap their minds around what's happening. What is the plan here? What is Jesus planning to do next? And no one is going to expect the week to unfold the way that it does. Now, Palm Sunday is a bit of a tricky Sunday uh, for us to try and figure out what to do with because there's a lot of things that happen inside of it. First, there's the Palm Sunday procession, which moves the gospel to the beginning. That's a pretty uh, standard thing that happens. Uh, but over the course of history, it has also become known as Passion Sunday. And so often, the full reading of Christ's Passion from St. Matthew is used on Palm Sunday. You hear that full account. And so that gets placed in there. And then over the course of history, many Lutheran churches also put confirmation into this day. And so there was a whole host of things that are happening in the course of Palm Sunday. Now, we, of course, do not have confirmation until after Mother's Day, but historically many Lutheran churches had done this. With the, with the intent being that you could have your first communion on Maundy Thursday. Correct, yeah. that you'd be ready for communion on Maundy Thursday. Yeah. Which was well-intentioned. Right, but it led to this day that seemed to have multiple facets and identities to it. And so our custom here is we try to observe Palm Sunday, both as Palm Sunday and as Passion Sunday, by having a rotation in which some years it's strictly Palm Sunday, other years it's Palm Sunday plus Passion Sunday. Now, part of the reason why all of this gets pushed into Palm Sunday is historically, the church would start celebrating what they called Passion Tide two weeks before Easter. So you would actually hear the account of the Passion last Sunday, and then you would have each of the events of Holy Week honored on their particular day. And I think there's some beauty to that, that you hear the full account of Christ's Passion, and then you have one last week of preparation for Holy Week, and then you get the Palm Sunday, the Monday, Thursday, the Good Friday, Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday. And historically, you would have also had services on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of that week as well. The change happens after Vatican II in the 60s, uh, and it is condensed to one week. And the reason for making the change was the secular demands on the Christian's life made it difficult for them to have the full observance of the Passion Tide as had been historically done. And for that reason, we then end up with Passion Sunday being the same day as Palm Sunday. This reminds me that there was one Lent, and I don't remember how many years ago it was, that we actually took the Passion reading and we divided it up across the weeks uh, of Lent for the midweek services, mm -hmm. which I thought was a, you know, a good way to get the Passion reading in. Right. Uh, uh, to make sure everybody heard at least the majority of it. Right. Well, and the challenge with that is each disciple tells the events through a particular lens because it's the same thing as if you were to listen to four eyewitnesses tell the story of a car accident. 
each of them is going to tell that story a bit differently or tell the story of a baseball game or of anything that happened. They're all going to talk about something different. They're all talking about the same event, but something different sticks out to them. And so the challenge is, how do you get all of those different stories told? Historically, you would hear all four accounts over the course of Holy Week. You'd hear St. Matthew on the Passion Sunday. You would hear St. Mark and St. Luke uh, early in the week, and then you would hear St. John on Good Friday itself. But so you have that that you've got to hold in tension, and then it is also a custom in many places to do what's called a conflated reading, where all four Gospels are combined, and so you get all of the elements of each of them being told, and that creates a really long reading, but you then hear all of the seven last words, you hear all of the different perspectives that you're looking for, and you end up with a conflated reading, which gives you an entirely different experience altogether. And so there's a lot of decisions that are made going into Holy Week uh, about how do we honor what is happening and recognize we have a breadth and depth of tradition handed down to us that gives us uh, a multitude of options to make Holy Week um, be what it is. But if you were to observe the historic Passion Tide, you would hear St. Matthew's Passion the Sunday before Palm Sunday. Then you'd celebrate Palm Sunday. Holy Monday, you would hear uh, the story of Jesus, of Mary anointing Jesus' feet from John chapter 12. And the reason that's on Monday is because it happens six days before, over the, before the Passover is when Mary does this, but the church observed it six days before Easter. Then on Tuesday you would hear the Jesus teaching that it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified and that the disciples still don't know what's happening. On Holy Wednesday, you'd come and you'd uh, celebrate what was called Spy Wednesday. I think that's a great name. But it's the story of Judas going to the chief priest to betray Jesus. And then Monday, Thursday would finally come and you would hear the story of... Um, of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, along with those different events, you would also hear the Passion story told from St. Mark on Tuesday and St. Luke on Wednesday. And then you come back on Friday for St. John. So you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John told over the course of the week. Now, over the course of time and with the dissolution of, holy, of um, uh, communities, uh, convents and monasteries and that sort of thing, the church has not observed the full extent of the Passion Tide, recognizing that the demands on people's lives and the difficulty for them to be able to do this. Well, and, and there's such a competition for your, your, your time and energy, the way, the way it has evolved over time. For example, we're doing a Seder meal this year. It, we've we've uh, cited it on Wednesday. Well, that right. kind of takes Wednesday off uh, right. out of play for doing anything like this. But other traditions like that have have um, been added to Holy Week. Right, and there's so many things to choose from that you are always leaving something behind. And then there's the practical aspect of, at some point in time, you need to practice the choir. You need to have handbell practice, you need to have choir practice, you need to have, the altar guild needs to have time to reset in between services, because not only was Passion Tide observed in this way, but as we'll talk about later at the end, the historic church would also then gather for every day of the week following Easter. And so you'd have the week leading into Easter being an intensive uh, time of 
fasting and observance, and then the week after Easter being the mirrored uh, intensive time of celebration and feasting. And so you have this balance, uh, and we uh, no longer observe that in its full extent either. But it's just interesting to consider how the church has tried to grapple with this over time. And so we talked about how Palm Sunday has a lot happening inside of it. Monday, Thursday is equally as challenging. So just as a note, Monday, by the way, comes from the Latin uh, mandatum or commandment, and so it's the commandment Thursday. This is the command I give to you, do this in remembrance of me. And we hear the gospel from John chapter 13. Monday, Thursday also has some decisions to be made because in it we hear of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and so you can take on the focus of charity and humility. You hear the story of the institution of the Lord's Supper, and so you can talk about what the Lord's Supper is all about and what's happening, why God gives us this gift, and it and the gospel reading ends with the betrayal of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so you can talk about him praying, the, the sweating of blood, the disciples falling asleep, the high priestly prayer, all of those things come into play. Well, there's no way you can cover all of this in the course of an evening service, so the pastor has to make a decision about what will the focus be in any given year. The, the focus, yes, but but still everything is is there because you get the reading about the right. about wa the washing of the feet. You have you celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, so at least it's there whether that's your emphasis right. or not. And then it ends with it ends with the the Garden of Gethsemane and the stripping of the altar. So it's it's uh, that inconclusive ending that's pushing you into Good Friday. So it's. You're setting the stage for right. Good Friday, so every everything is there regardless of what the what the right. uh, emphasis is. Right, but it, but with everything being there, you do have to decide what you emphasize. But you've also got to be cognizant of the fact that you can't just pick your favorite one year after year after year after year. You do have to, at some point in time, choose an one of the other emphases to cover what's happening because all three of these things are important. Now, I would argue that within the Lutheran Church and probably within Roman Catholicism, the institution of the Lord's Supper is going to be the one that is generally favored because the Lord's Supper is so incredibly important. Now, and, well, and, and what other times in the church here would we um, focus on it so much? Right. Probably right. Not, none other. Right. You can get charity and humility in other passages. You can get the high priestly prayer talking... You can talk about Jesus praying for his people in other times of the year, but the Lord's Supper really comes through most clearly on Monday, Thursday. Which is why in, in some corners of Christianity, they go as far as to create, have a recreation of the Lord's Supper, which I right. think really, really brings it to life. Uh, right. Well, but what's interesting is if you look how this is covered in the news, normally what's happening, if if you start to see talking about the Christian observance of um, Monday, Thursday, and the Easter services, if you're going to see coverage of that, it is normally what is happening in the Vatican, what is the Roman Catholic Church doing, how is the Pope observing these holy days. And of those three focuses for uh, the news cycle, the one that tends to get the most emphasis is the Pope washing people's feet. And so every year there is a tradition in Rome 
that the Pope will wash the feet of a handful of people. And the Pope recognizes the symbolism of what he's doing. So oftentimes it will be homeless individuals, people brought out of a Roman prison, um, some um, trying to identify the poor, the weak, the orphaned, the widowed, trying to find those marginalized groups and have them be the ones who receive the care that the Pope can provide. I think along with that, sometimes they tend to focus on the the Via Dolorosa, the, the, the walk through Jerusalem that they, they, their guess is, is that this, right. is, this is the way that Christ moved through Jerusalem to, the, to Calvary. Right. right, and if you were in Jerusalem, that would be a big emphasis of what's happening this weekend is one of the many things happening in Jerusalem, of course, would be walking the, the way of the cross. Um, so what, would, what we would consider to be probably the primary focus of Monday Thursday isn't necessarily one that the secular world is looking to to find meaning, um, but instead they're looking for more for the charity aspect of it because if you take away the spiritual promise, what do you have left? Well, love your neighbor is always a pretty good place to land. The other thing that's happening on Monday, Thursday, is we are beginning what's called the tri Tritium, or the three sacred days. It is the three central days of the Christian faith, and it's marked by very fast, dramatic events. We have the Lord's Supper, Christ's arrest, his trial, his judgment, his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection. And so Monday, Thursday starts this three-day service that does not end until the end of the Easter Vigil. It is only paused. And so Thursday evening, we leave the service with, after communion is over, we pray the post-communion collect, and then the lights are turned off, and we start to hear a psalm being sung, and in the darkness, Vicar and I remove everything that can be easily moved from the chancel, and it's called the stripping of the altar. It's a reminder that during this time, Jesus has left the supper, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's stripped of his followers. And well, it's in, go yeah, ahead. And it, and it also, it's not just the stripping away of his followers, but it's also kind of a taking away of his power and glory, because what, what are the terms? There's, there's the, there's the uh, uh, removal of those, and then, and then after he conquers death. Oh, the humiliation and the exaltation. Thank you, thank you, yes, yes. I, yes. And so his... It is, it, it is the culmination of his, of his humiliation, not as in shame, but as in he has humbled himself because he chooses not to call the angels to save him. He chooses to tell Peter, put your sword away, don't defend me, when he chops off Malchus's ear. He chooses to put aside all of those signs of power and submit to what's happening for the sake of salvation. Which is a nice bookend when you think about it to what happens the first Sunday in Lent, where he's tempted, you right? Know, you know, he could call upon the angels, you know, but uh, it's a, it's a nice bookend on on both ends oh, of Lent. It's beautiful to see how Lent walks us through this whole part of Christ's ministry. And, and not only that, but there's also at the beginning of the Maundy Thursday service, there's the extended confession and absolution, mm -hmm. which again ties us back to the beginning of Lent. We do the same thing on Ash Wednesday. Right. So it's a, it's a beautifully rounded form. It is. When you start digging into how this is all laid out and put together, that when you allow yourself 
to be immersed in what the church is doing during the Lenten and Holy Week season, it really is remarkable how this has all been put together. And so everything is taken out of the chancel, anticipating the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we see the empty chancel, we are to see Jesus alone in the darkness. And in many ways, we're to see the destruction of the church, the, the tearing apart of the disciples during this time, but also the destruction of the church, the reminder that if Christ were not present, the church would not be here either because everything that pertains to the life of the church is removed from the chancel. And the building is essentially rendered empty and lifeless at that time. And one of my favorite moments in the year is after Monday, Thursday is over, before we've reset for Good Friday, we turn the lights back on just so that we can finish things up. But I think it is one of the most moving and beautiful moments in the church because it is so starkly empty. There's no color. There's no decoration. It's just empty. And, and quiet. And quiet. It is... It is unlike any other moment of the year, and it is hauntingly beautiful. And this happens just as the sun is going down, because at sundown, Good Friday begins. And so we do not, when we end the service on Monday, Thursday, there's no closing hymn, there's no benediction, because the service did not end. Everybody leaves, and the service is paused until we return on Good Friday to remind us, be reminded of what Christ endures on the cross, but even there, it does not end. It does not end until the Easter Vigil. And so we leave on Friday, and if we're following the Tridium, we come back for the Friday Tenebrae, which is the evening service, and we hear the reading of St. John's Passion. St. John teaches us that Good Friday is a restrained celebration modeled after the Son of God who moves majestically through the events of judgment on this day. Now, I hadn't noticed that before until I was studying for this year, that John really has a majesty to the way that Jesus keeps his dignity in the midst of the humiliation. And, and John really highlights that more than the other apostles do. Right, and, and as uh, I've, I found noted on this was that the, the, his glory is what dominates in John as compared to the other two. Matthew is more just a, this happened, this happened, right. this happened. Right. It's not quite that, 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 that light shone on Christ's right. glory. And Luke, it, likes to have a little bit more grittiness to it. That's very much his focus on the humanity of Jesus. But John just has this dignity, which is a perfect bookend for John, given that he starts with, in the beginning is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. And so we always see him focusing on Christ's divinity. And so we see God himself moving through the events of Good Friday. So we hear the Gospel according to St. John. The Tenebrae service is very stark. There's, there, we don't put any decoration back into the sanctuary, and the lights get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, ending the service with what's called the strepitous or loud sound, marking the earthquake and the agony of creation that follows Christ's death. And like Monday, Thursday, this service does not conclude, but pauses, waiting for the arrival of Easter Vigil. And then we come to Holy Saturday, and the Easter Vigil service, which is also in the evening, begins outside around a fire, and then it enters into the church. The church is dark, marking Israel's journey into the promised land. In many ways, it's seen as the Christian Passover, marking the story of our deliverance from sin and death into life. 
And the history of salvation is told through the symbols, the words, the actions of the congregation as we gather around the newly lit Paschal candle or baptismal candle. The service climaxes with the Easter proclamation, the lights being turned on, the candles being lit, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then finally, at the end of that service, after what, when you add it all up, ends up being close to three and a half or four hours of services between Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil, you finally get the benediction. And you finally conclude the story of the Lord's Passion. Because now Easter has arrived. I know in some quarters there's a, there's a, a disagreement about what should happen on Good Friday. Uh, should you have should you have the sacrament or not? Right. Um, and if you look at it as a whole, I think you see that that's pretty much taken care of on Thursday, and then your arrival at the vigil. There's really not a necessity for it right. on Good Friday. Right. Yeah. And so, congregations will do different things on Good Friday. We do not have the Lord's Supper on Good Friday. Historically, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, would have the Lord's Supper available, but they would not bless the elements. It would be reserved from the day before. That comes into conflict with some of our theology, um, but it was the way they tried to work around it. So the, if you're going to have the Lord's Supper, it's going to happen in what's called the chief service. So you can either do as part of the tritium, the tenebrae service, which is the service of, dark, of, of darkness, where it gets darker and darker and darker, or you can do a chief service, which focuses more on meditating on the meaning of the cross. And the chief service is designed so that it can have the Lord's Supper as part of it. The problem is, is it kind of shortchanges. I think if you don't have an Easter vigil, you're more inclined to have the chief service because it pulls some of that vigil imagery into the Good Friday service um, and, and tries to handle it in that way. But Good Friday, you've got a lot of options. You can do the Tenebrae Vespers. You can do the chief service with the divine service. Some congregations will do the chief service at noon, the Tenebrae service in the evening. We do the Traori service, uh, which is a third option for Good Friday, and that is a service, Traori being three hours, that is uh, called an extra liturgical service held from noon until three. The history of this was fascinating. I did not know this until this year, um, that it was developed in Lima, Peru. It's got to be the only service that we do that comes out of South America. Um, but it is relatively recent, developed in 1687 following an earthquake, and didn't really gain a lot of popularity until the Church of England picks it up in 1860. And then the Lutheran Church picked it up out of the Church of England very shortly after that. But it's a three-hour service with seven short services, I think they're 25 minutes apiece, focusing on the seven last words of Christ. So you can do that in that noon to three hour, or you can do the chief service during that time. You can only do tenebrae at night because it's the Vespers service, but you could do that tenebrae service or the chief service. And so there's a lot of options for congregations about what to do on Good Friday. Regardless of what you choose, they're always subdued, Rarely is there pre-service music or a postlude. You assemble in silence, you leave in silence, and it is the minimum amount of things that needed in order to make the service happen. And things are still very bare left from uh, Thursday. Uh, in fact, there's no pyramids, 
and and um, you you're not vesting as you normally would. Correct. We just wear the black uh, cassock. You can, and some congregations will have black pyramids that they'll put up. Most congregations don't invest in black pyramids because they're rather expensive for the one day a year or twice and perhaps would they be you could use them on ash, ash wednesday, wednesday. Yeah. yeah and but there's something beauty there's a lot of beauty to the just simple non-adorned sanctuary um that being said black pyramids are incredibly effective and very beautiful so good friday a lot of options happening inside of it so keeping in mind, so what, how do we observe Holy Week? We come on Palm Sunday, where we have the Palm Sunday celebration and may or may not hear the Passion reading, depend on the year. Then on Monday, Thursday, we come, we hear the Monday, Thursday account with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of those three will be focused on in the sermon, but all three will be heard in the service. Then we get to Good Friday, where we have the Traore from noon until 3, and Tenebrae at 6.30 that evening. Next up in this list would be Saturday. Traditionally, Holy Saturday is meant to be a day marked by silence among Christians and a day of fasting. And I've, I can remember even as a child always having the sense that it just didn't feel right to turn the TV on, on on Saturday. There was something about that day between Good Friday and Easter that just always struck me as it was supposed to be a different day. Traditionally, there's no services for the daylight hours, making it an a-liturgical day, which is a term I hadn't encountered until I was working on this study. A-liturgical meaning there is no liturgy assigned for Holy Saturday. It's the only day of the year to hold this distinction, that nothing happens. And it's done that way because it's meant to be the day that marks Jesus' rest in the tomb. So sometimes the question will come up with, what was Jesus doing on Saturday? Well, he was resting. Just like on day seven of creation, Jesus looks at all that he has made and is very good, and he rests, and he declares the day holy. On the seventh day, Jesus looks at all that he has done, and it is complete, and he rests. He's not doing anything else. He is just taking time. Now, if, if you ever need a, a reminder of why it's important for us to rest, it's this. If God himself takes a day to just rest, why should we be so presumptuous as to say we don't need one? Well, in the Old Testament, there's so many reminders of that about about um, letting your fields go fallow. It's a, it's a, yeah. there was a, there was a cycle of that, and, right? And if you if you observed it, it actually was better, better, um, right? It was healthier. Yes, yeah, because you needed to let the soil just rest, and this resting, this quietness, this hushed nature of Holy Saturday, is a reminder. To the world that if Christ is dead, it's devoid of his presence, it's without life. And so because Christ is resting, there is no life in the church, and it's not yet ready for the celebration. Now, to be fair, that doesn't mean nothing's happening at the church. A lot happens on Holy Saturday within the church. 
but none of it is divine service related. It's all preparations for Easter Sunday. And all of this comes to a conclusion at sundown when the Easter vigil begins and the whole service of Easter vigil is about bringing life back into the church. We light the Paschal candle for the uh, first time in the new Easter season. Um, sometimes people say the date's wrong on the candle, but the date on the candle doesn't change until the Easter vigil because new life is being breathed back into the church for the new year. And so the light enters into the church for the first time in the new Easter season, and we get this breath of life with Easter proclamation and the celebration that Christ is alive. And I think as much as that moment on Monday, Thursday, where everything is just starkly empty in the church, the, the moment that is equal to it in its power and its, um, its sense of being overwhelming for me is the moment when the Easter proclamation is said at the Easter vigil. The lights come back on, we ring the bells, and immediately begin to sing, this is the feast. It is just this great moment of Christ is risen. And it's so, so powerful. Because you've been in the dark, you can smell the Easter lilies, but you can't see them. You can get glimpses of the white pyramids, but you can't see them. And then all of a sudden, it's there. That gets us to Easter Sunday, where in some places you'll have a sunrise service, where you hear the Gospel of John. Then you'll have an Easter morning service, which is what we have here, where you historically um, hear the Gospel of Mark. Now we rotate it through the three-year lectionary. We tend to favor the Gospel of John, and we'll often use that regardless of the year. And then, in some places, you'll come back on Easter evening to hear the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus and his uh, revealing himself to them. And this kicks off what is called Bright Week. In the Middle Ages, Easter would be celebrated for a whole week. Eventually, it was shortened to Monday through Wednesday as a balance to the tritium. However, today it is rarely observed in any parish. But if you do, each day focuses on another one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. You get a start of the doubting Thomas, but you don't go all the way there because that really comes up on Easter too. But you get Jesus eating fish on the seashore. You get the Emmaus Road account. You get um, Jesus. Um, a lot of eating happens in his resurrection, in part because it shows he has a physical body. To show that he is physically there. So what's happened over time is, is since those have fallen away, those readings now appear in, in Sundays later in the Easter season. Right. We still get them. It's just not that compact, uh, intense week follow, right. immediately following Easter. Right. And so what you lose in that, though, is the sense of timeline. You don't realize how many resurrection appearances Jesus has on Easter day. It's no wonder he took Saturday to take a nap. Um, he had a busy day ahead of him. But um, you see a lot of resurrection appearances very quickly. And now we spread it out. So we get Doubting Thomas on week two. Uh, week three will be another resurrection appearance. Week four gives us Good Shepherd Sunday. And then we start to see Jesus preparing for his ascension. And then with the culmination on Easter 7, Easter 7 is the last Easter? That's the last Easter. one, yeah. yeah. With the... Um, well, Ascension is usually between 6 right, and 7. Right, right. Ascension is yeah. between 6 and 7, but then on week 7, you get uh, disciples replacing Judas as the epistle reading and this focus on 
what happens next as propelling into the season of Pentecost and the church time of the church. Which, which skews your, your sense of how, how these events happened uh, because you, 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 you think, oh, well, they unfolded over a period of six weeks. Well, actually not. The, the road to Emmaus and Doubting Thomas and all that happened within, within a day or two of his right. resurrection. Right, yes. And so, well, he appears to the disciples. Thomas isn't there. Thomas, that does happen a week later. So we do get Thomas on that day. But if you were to come, I think the sequence was you get Emmaus Road on Sunday night, the appearance to the 10, because Thomas is missing and Judas has committed suicide, on Monday, then you get eating fish on the seashore on Tuesday, and Wednesday is, is some other he eats with the disciples story. So, so when we look at the week that is to come, we can see that history has given us a lot of different things to choose from on how to observe Easter. But the point of it is, Holy Week is there to move us through the core of what it means to be confessing the Christian faith and driving us ahead in a very rapid way to Easter and the celebration that follows. So as you might expect, because there is so much happening, the amount of music and hymnody that's available for this week is equally as deep and broad and um, valuable as the traditions of how to observe these days are, that are, have been given to us. And so, Paul, when you are picking music for this time of year, how do you go about doing that, and what, what are you looking for in those hymns? There, there's so much to pick from, and that's the difficulty, is there's, there's so much great music to pick from. But, it, but it's certainly, um, uh, because it's uh, a lot of the music is, for example, if you take something like Jesus Christ is Risen Today, um, you will hear about it if you don't sing that hymn on right. Easter because it's so fused to, to um, that particular day in the church year, much as if, you know, if you didn't sing Silent Night on Christmas, it would right. be the same kind of thing. Or so, didn't sing All Glory, Laud, and Honor on Palm Sunday, or O Sacred Head Now Wounded on Good Friday. I don't know that there's a Monday Thursday hymn that people would have to have. Well, and that, that is partly because there's so many multiple emphases there that um, it depends on what you're, what you're trying to bring out. Um, so um, certainly familiarity is something that people are looking for because it kind of anchors them in, ah, this feels like Easter, this feels like right. what, Palm Sunday or whichever day during Holy Week it is. So you need that certain element of, of familiarity there. But there's so many beautiful texts, including some, some new ones in our hymnal that really uh, uh, tell the story very well about what, hap what the, the gravity and importance of this week is. Mm -hmm. Right, and so it's worth noting that as we plan the services, we are considering a lot of different things, but always, first and foremost, is what is the text of the day? What is the narrative that's given to us by Scripture? And then everything else is subservient to that. We start with, this is the text. Now, what do we have that communicates what this text is trying to tell us? And that we always start with Scripture and move out from there. So the hymn that you've chosen for today is an Easter hymn. 
Yes, I hope you don't mind that we've uh, kind of jumped over um, a, a lot of Holy Week. We did a we did a, a, a very much a Good Friday hymn recently, so I thought, well, let's let's advance forward. And since we're not doing a podcast next week, and we will be right upon Easter, I thought it was uh, perhaps a good choice to do an Easter hymn. And the one I chose for this week is the, the Strife is O'er, the Battle Done, which is 464 in our hymnal. And um, you may not think of it as, as a, a classically Lutheran hymn. Uh, I had toyed with the idea of doing um, Christ Lay in Death Strong, Death Strong Bonds, which is Luther's hymn based on the, the old Easter sequence, um, Victime Pascali Laudis, and all those related melodies. Um, there's so much to cover there, that's almost a podcast in itself. Um, so I, I, I decided to cover something that was a little bit uh, different here. This one we'll sing as, a, as the processional hymn on Easter. It makes a great processional hymn just because I, um, it's, it's a very approachable melody, um, very easy to sing, I, I think, and has uh, an interesting history, as well, all our hymns have interesting histories. You know, how did we come to inherit this as part of our, 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 our hymn our legacy of hymns that we celebrate in the church. So um, this particular one is, it's the, the imagery of it is, is definitely a, a warfare kind of imagery. It, it talks about the strife, the battle, the victor, the triumph. And it definitely ties you uh, also to the passage in 1 Corinthians where it talks about the sting of death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? And this reminder that Christ has the ultimate victory all, over all these things. And the way the hymn is structured is, is um, uh, very interesting. You have the first, uh, it's, the poetic meter of it is 888, which is rather unusual. And if you look at the different eights, the first two eights kind of outline what the, the importance of this event is that Christ has conquered death and the devil. Um, he has dispersed um, uh, the powers of hell. Um, the three days have, have quickly sped. I think it's one of the few references to the three days that I can recall in, in Easter hymns, uh, uh, broke the, the chains of hell. But then it always concludes with, what is our response? And, the, and that last set of eight syllables always tells us what our response is. So it's kind of a great metaphor for worship. What should our response be to these magnificent things that Christ has done for us? And each time it gives a different answer. Now let the song of praise begun. Let the shouts of joy outburst. Um, all glory to our risen head. Let hymns of praise his triumph tell and that we may live and sing to thee. That our, our response for this is always we, we just overflow with praise. And so we're reminded each time that that is to be um, um, our response to the, 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 the gift of his victory over sin, death, and the devil. This text, um, it's thought that perhaps it is, is as old as the 12th century, but they, we can't find any proof that it's that old, but just, just given the character of it, and it was a Latin hymn. So it comes to us directly out of the Latin and gained popularity uh, when it was translated in the mid 18th century, excuse me, the mid 19th century by Francis Pott. And this is the, the translation that we use. One Which thing- I've always been impressed with his translation. 
because he takes and finds words that we don't often use in our language and is able to make them rhyme. So we get done rhymed with one. You wouldn't normally put those two together. Worst with dispersed. That works together. And then sped and dead, and then the rest of them come together. But he does a beautiful job of translating Latin into English and making the text interesting and still fit together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One, one interesting difference between our old hymnal, the TLH from 1941, and our current hymnal, which came out in 2006, they changed one of the verses. And I don't know why, because I don't think the original is that difficult to grasp. The, and that is, <clears throat> excuse me, that one is in stanza four. In, in our hymnal it reads, he broke the age-bound chains of hell. To me, that's very clunky to sing and say. The, the TLH version was, he closed the yawning gates of hell, which I think is an is a, is a amazing image that has, that has been lost. Yes, I'm trying to think of why they made that change. I can't think of a compelling reason why they would have made that change, because I don't, I don't think it's that difficult of, a, of an image to grasp. And I think it's, it's, it's a little less clumsy. <coughs> ne nevertheless, um, uh, it, was, it was an update that they, that they made uh, to the text. Otherwise, the balance of it is very much as Pot had translated. It has been preserved for us. That's the text. Um, let me say a, a, um, some interesting things about the tune. The tune is the only tune that we have in our hymnal that's taken from the music of Palestrina, uh, uh, who is the Italian composer from the Renaissance, who is upheld as the, the ultimate master of Renaissance counterpoint. I was just going to say that I find that incredibly hard to believe that this is the only tune that we have of Palestrina because if you've studied music at all, you have to study Palestrina. Palestrina, the father of, of Renaissance counterpoint, and even the way he uh, codified the rules of counterpoint carried through the Baroque area and actually all the way up to the present. And for the sake of clarity, what is counterpoint? Counterpoint is, is the handling of, of voices, how they interact with each other. There's, there's two ways to look at it. If you have multiple voices sounding, there's the vertical structure, the two voices on top of each other forming chords. Um, that's the vertical structure. But then you can have very much like the chorales that we would sing. Yes, yes, yeah. Beautiful hymns, Savior would be a prime example of that kind of structure. Well, the majority of our the majority of our hymns are are thought of in vertical structures <clears throat> that each syllable has its own chord. You hear things very vertically. That multiple notes coming together are are designed to to um, fulfill that requirement that they're making a beautiful chord together. In counterpoint, you're more interested in, in the movement of the voices linearly, how they move over time. So for example, if you, if you take something like a, like a canon, it's very easy to understand, uh, you know, like row, row, row your boat. Mm -hmm. Each line is independent, but um, they, they, as they overlap, they happen to make a pleasant harmony, but you're far more interested in what's happening in a linear way, how they're moving over time, the, the melody that's unfolding. Okay. And so in later times, you get, in the Baroque era, you, you get to the time of Bach, and he takes this to the nth degree, where you're creating very complicated fugues 
where the lines, their, their linear motion is what's the most interesting part. True, how they line up vertically has to be uh, consonant or, or pleasing, but it's the linear motion of the lines that's more interesting. So then it's interesting then, because I'm looking at the harmony <laughs> within this, that it's Palestrina's tune, but it's very much a vertical oh, alignment. Very, very, very there much. Is not a lot of counterpoint no, happening. There, there is no contrapuntal interest right. in this There is no interesting alto part, no, no fun tenor line. It is very much a stacked on top of each other. Everybody moves at exactly the same time. Right. And so you would be mistaken to think that all of, all of Palestrina's music is, is this um, intense and, and, and highly complicated counterpoint. It's not. What they did and what, what was a, a, a genius way to vary texture within their music is they would alternate sections. They would have sections very much like this, very homophonic or, or homorhythmic, I, I should say, uh, moving more like a chorale or hymn. And then the next section of the piece would be very a florid kind of counterpoint. So they had that contrast in the music. The different sections would have both. Sometimes within even one passage of music, it would be a mixture of two. So did Palestrina also use the multiple choir effect where he'd have groups scattered throughout the building? Uh, yes, but although that was not his claim to fame. That was more um, uh, the, the invention of the, the Gabriellis that were at work at, at um, in Venice, at St. Mark's in Venice, is kind of the home of all that. Heinrich Schutz, a good Lutheran, studied with mm -hmm. them and, and so copied that idea. Palestrina spent most of his life, or I should say, spent his entire career in Rome. And actually he was, he was handpicked and hired by Pope Julius for a while uh, to be the, the musician there at the Vatican. Um, that was rather short-lived um, because Julius died shortly thereafter and the, the succeeding popes um, did not um, retain him in that position. One of the reasons being is Julius gave him a dispensation that he could be married. Otherwise, all the Sistine Chapel employees were required to be celibate, just like the priests. Mm -hmm. And so Palestrina <clears throat> married. Um, the next popes came along and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that anymore. And so he, he stayed in Rome to work and was still very successful and highly regarded but he didn't have that position at the Sistine Chapel anymore. So rules Which are problem, rules, rules, rules are the rules, rules. But I'm sure that infected, uh, impacted his funding a little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and interestingly, he was offered the uh, position in Vienna to be a, you know, the court composer uh, or at the, from, I'm guessing it would have been from the bishop in Vienna, uh, but he turned that down. He preferred to stay in Rome. So he was definitely- A home is home. Home is home, that is, that is true. <laughs> Um, okay, back to the music. Uh, the, the two name for this is uh, Victory. I've also seen it in some hymnals referred to as Palestrina, which is a very logical name right. for it. Uh, victory, just given the, the sense, uh, I think victory is a good summary of the text. It just talks about his victory over, over the hell and, and incident. And I think I've heard to it referred to as the Palestrina. The Palestrina, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you just know it's this hymn. It's that hymn. It's that hymn, exactly. The musical material for this is actually quite minimal when you think about it. And the, and the, the gentleman that uh, 
arranged it into a hymn from Palestrina's music was William Henry Monk, who was a 19th century um, compiler of, of hymns for hymns ancient and modern, that, that treasury of hymns from the 19th, 19th century England, that uh, we, we make a lot of use of those hymns. So he, he rescued this, or he, he found this particular passage in Palestrina's music and turned it into a hymn. The original music was, uh, the text to it was the Gloria Patri that was part of a Magnificat setting. So um, you can imagine the words were, you know, uh, uh, glory be to the Father and to the Son, that, that doxological mm -hmm. kind of uh, uh, text, um, but also as part of a, a, a setting of the Magnificat. So if we were to be listening to that particular piece of music and got to the Gloria Patri, we would, would we recognize We it? should be able to recognize this. I have not located a recording of that, but we should be able to recognize it. And Sounds like a good exercise for maybe after Holy Week. <laughs> um, but when you look at the three phrases, the three musical phrases in the verses, it's a minimum of material. The first and the third are actually identical. And so Monk decided, okay, I'll take that first phrase and I'll just repeat it again at the end and, and, and there will be our tune. And then on top of that, he added the alleluias. So there's an alleluia refrain that's sung at the beginning of the piece, and there's one at the very end of the verses. Those were additions by Monk. So he just took basically the musical ideas there, you know, what, what would be compatible with, with this melody that Palestrina wrote, and I'll just, I'll just bookend it with these, uh, these refrains, these Alleluia refrains. So that's Monk's contribution to the tune. And it's beautifully set. It is in the key of D, which as we've said before, is a great place for a congregation to sing. It stays within the octave, but it moves around in the octave in an incredibly predictable way. Um, yeah, lest we get too excited about the key of D, which is the, the, the it's a very common key for a lot of Easter hymns. I know that my Redeemer lives. Um, uh, it's, it's just a key, a key that's normally associated with very festive occasions. Uh, well, this is the feast is in the key of D. Um, originally, this was set in the key of E, so a whole step higher. It sings quite high, I think, in that. That key. would be a stretch for a congregation. And in our, and in the TLH, they had dropped it by one half step into the key of E flat. In our current hymnal, they dropped it one more half step into the key of D. And I, I do think it would just sound better in the key of D as opposed to the key of E flat. Possibly, although E flat also has that kind of um, uh, notion of of of. Or kingship, royalty, and yeah. Way. So, um, in my ear, it always sounds a little bit it, like softer, though, not quieter, softer, but it just doesn't have a have the brightness edge to it. Um, okay, so uh, let's um, let's sing a couple of the the stanzas. Uh, we'll have the alleluias at the beginning and the end. I hope that doesn't offend anybody. That's uh, that's pre that we're, we're jumping the gun a little bit on the Easter season here. You're making us break the fast, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so I propose that we sing a refrain. We sing stanza one, um, stanza five, and then another refrain. Sounds good. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. The strife is o'er the battle. Now is the victor 
Father's triumph won. Now be the song of praise begun. Alleluia! Lord, by the stripes which wounded thee, from death's dreads take thy servants free, that we may live and sing to thee. Alleluia! 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 Yeah, so it works well as a processional because, and that's helpful because we always have a processional for Easter, and it's easy to sing as you're moving, easy to sing as you're watching things move past, and it's the right tempo to walk to. Jesus Christ is risen today, sometimes moves at a little bit faster of a clip, <laughs> and you don't need to see your crucifer run down the aisle. And it's, it's a lot more wordy, too. Yes. Well, let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake we pray. Amen. Please join us for our services during Holy Week on Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Saturday for the Easter Vigil, and Easter Sunday. A complete schedule can be found on our website at flcgb.com. Mm -hmm.